Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Ask Firebug Fridays, the weekly fire Q&A where you guys get to submit your questions and I try my best to answer them. Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to CanStar, uh, the website. They released an article the other day with uh, seven investment podcasts for Australian investors and yours truly was ranked at number one. So I'm not sure if... Um, anyone like if there was any vote or anything like that but i got a whole, whole influx of views that day um canstar.com.au it's a pretty big website they do a lot of like comparison and um they like compare home loans and insurances and stuff like that um and they have an investor hub section and this is where i found it so i had a yeah an influx of um views and then i could you know where are all these views coming from i had a whole bunch of subscribers in one day i think i had like 250 subs in one day and i was like whoa this is a quite a big jump so I jumped online checked it out and they had written this article and featured uh the aussie firebug podcast as number one so thank you very much canstar uh it's encouraging to know i must be doing something right and with that said, we can move on to the episode. But before we do, of course, I would like to thank our sponsors for today, which is none other than Self Wealth, which is who I consider to be the best broker in Australia. If you need to buy ETFs or you need to buy listed investment companies or you're wanting to buy individual shares, you need to set yourself up with a broker. I trade through Self Wealth because they have the lowest trading fees on the ASX that I've found. It's $9.50 per trade, no matter what the size of the trade is. They're chess sponsored, so no issues transferring HIN or anything like that. There is no really, there's no really good reason not to be using Self Wealth. They're the cheapest one in the market that I've found. Uh, if you want to start your journey to financial independence and start acquiring shares, listing investment companies, ETFs, Set yourself up, set yourself up with self wealth today and begin your journey. I have got a special link that if you want to sign up, you can score yourself five free trades. It's aussiefirebug.com forward slash self wealth. If you're going through that link, you sign up, you can start uh, trading, start your journey and you can get five free trades. So instead of paying the $9.50 at the very start, you can get five free trades and really begin, uh, make a start towards financial independence and just get going really uh, it's one of the most important steps i suffered from analysis paralysis for a while there but once you make your first trade there's no going back and without further ado let's jump into the episode nothing in this episode is financial advice the following q and a are for general information only and should not be taken as constituting professional advice you should always do your own research when making any financial decisions Question one on this fine Friday comes from Derek. Derek writes, Hi, Aussie Firebug. First of all, love your work and Ask Firebug Friday episodes, so thank you very much. I understand your stance on super as you cannot access any of it until your 60s. However, as a potential first home buyer, I cannot help to consider the first home super saver scheme where you can access up to $30,000 of pre-tax salary sacrificed voluntary contributions you've made to me it sounds like a no-brainer but please let me know if this uh, it sounds like a good deal from the government from your end or am i missing anything that would cause me to reconsider thanks derek thank you derek for your question first of all the first home 
what is it? The first home savers super scheme. Believe I got that right. What a ugly acronym to to have in there. The first home super savers scheme. That's it. Anyway, what a mouthful. But um, the FHSSS as the acronym is called, is I think it's a great way to save for your first deposit. So anyone that doesn't know what this scheme is, basically in a nutshell, you can uh, contribute to your super, like voluntary um, contributions through salary sacrifice. So I hope hope you know what that is, but basically you can put pre-tax income into super up to 25,000 is the current cap, I believe. And basically, with this scheme, you, you if you put any contributions in, I believe it was from uh, July last year, 2017, you essentially can put them in, they get taxed at the normal rate of 15% for super, and then you can take them out uh, up to $30,000, so you can only use this for maximum amount of $30,000, um, and bring the money out later when you're ready to purchase a home and when you're taking the money out it gets tacked onto your uh, income less 30%. So it's a it's a tax advantage way of saving for your first uh home uh buyers or home um house deposit basically. So it's a pretty it's a pretty good way to do it. Like it's not bad. It's def- it's definitely worth doing like from a financial point of view, it is good. I feel as though they've made it a little bit more complicated uh, than it needs to be. Um, uh, just make sure. So my only, if I was doing this, I haven't done this before, but if I was, I would just make sure you read all the rules about um, how what you've got to do for the ATO to know that you're making the salary sacrifice contributions for the um, FHSSS. Uh, the scheme and what's involved with taking the money back out because that's the most important part. Uh, you don't want to get stuck in any loopholes or if you put it in, you can't get it out or something like that because you're using it to save for your first house. Uh, my only other concern um, is check with your employer and this is probably a concern for anyone that does salary sacrifice. Not everyone, not all employers um, do it, but not many people know that technically if you salary sacrifice, it can be counted towards your super guarantee that your employer has to pay. I know not too many people knew about that, but it's worth checking. So basically, um, I've got a link in uh, the article, but if you read exactly what's involved with um, super guarantee payments, the salary sacrifice component can be counted towards your super guarantee, which in a nutshell means if your employer is, you know, has the guarantee of uh, 9% or whatever it is now, um, if your salary sacrificing, you know, up to the $30,000 and you're only making $100,000 a year, or not only, that's a lot of money, but you're making 100 grand a year, they have to, um, chip in $9,000 and 9% for your uh, super guarantee. But technically, salary sacrifice counts towards that super guarantee and it could mean that they don't have to chip in at all. Read the article. I've got a link in there. If it's freaking anyone out that's already doing salary sacrificing, uh, I checked with my employer and then they uh, they don't do it. And I believe there's actually a law 
um, coming to stop employers doing it. So even if you salary sacrifice, technically they don't have to, like if you salary sacrifice up to the 9%, um, I don't believe they have to um, chip in, but I think they're changing that rule. But just check with your employer, read the article, uh, make sure you know that's not happening because if it is, I'm not sure if it's worth it. Um, and that would be, other than that though, if, if your employer's all good with that and they're not ripping you off like that, um, and you understand everything, how it works, the obligations, you need to get the money out, I would, uh, definitely do it. If I was in your situation, that's something that I would take advantage on, of. Why not? It's a tax saving. So I say go for it. Hope that answers your question, Derek. Our next question comes from Andy. And this was a question. I got a lot of these questions or similarly worded questions um, along the same uh, topics. It's not the most interesting topic, but I thought I would just talk about it because I got a lot of questions about it. So uh, Andy writes in, hi, Aussie Firebug. What is going on with the markets at the moment? Licks and ETFs are way down. Are you going to wait for them to drop more or buy now? Andy. So the reason I included this in today's episode is because there was a uh, significant drop the other day or the other week, month, all the weeks are just merging into one for me at the moment. Um, but yeah, it, it went down a fair bit and I know if you're involved or if you're um, interested in finance, it's sort of impossible not to keep up to date with the the news, the financial news. So I get it. I'm a um, I do that all the time, even though I know I shouldn't. But with our investing, we try to stick to a consistent plan of investing every single month, no matter what the market is doing. If you actually look at the research, if you're doing, if you're investing consistently over a long period of time, it doesn't actually matter so much. Um, the peaks and trough, if you're doing it consistently over a long period, it all evens itself out. And with the overall trajectory of the market being upwards, um, you theoretically, I don't think there's been a, a period of time like in history or since the stock market has begun that you would be down money if you've been consistently investing for um, like longer than a few few years, like five or six or seven years, whatever it was. The, uh, the biggest crash in history, even if you had invested the day before the crash happened and you waited like a few years, I can't remember exactly the, the details of it, you'd still make money. The point is that if you hold out long enough and you don't sell at the bottom, um, you still come ahead. So with that being the case, we have always been believers of investing consistently no matter what the, what the market is doing. And I'm not going to try to decipher all the world's economies and predicts what, what's going to happen next because a lot of people get that stuff wrong. And to be completely honest, I've just got better stuff to do. I'm not worried about that. Now, I, I do tell people not to, um, you know, to stay away from market predictions, but I, of course, get sucked in and I read, you know, financial news nearly every day. And I know I shouldn't, but I think the only news that is worthy to read and that you should really um, take notice of is when it's it's stick with the facts. So if there's new laws that are changing or so if there's a, a law that's created or a current law that's changing that will impact your portfolio or impact your investment style, they're the ones that you want to read about and know about and understand. So with the franking credits change next year, even though it's not 
in legislation just yet. That's that's something that potentially could change our investment investing style. So that's something I'm keeping my finger on the pulse very carefully. Um, and I eagerly anticipate what's going to happen there, but all the market fluctu- fluctuations and all the pundits and everything like that, I tried, I tried to stay away from. So I don't know what's going on with the markets. Yes, we invested, uh, when it was down. That was just by luck and that was just a bonus, but we would have done the same thing if the markets were booming. So. Hope that answers yours and a whole bunch of other questions I got um, that was asking me around about the same question. So um, hope that answers all you guys out there. And our last question for today, we're getting through it quite quickly today. Uh, Going to be a short episode, but our last question comes from Ryan. Ryan writes, hi, mate. We'd love to get your thoughts on debt recycling. Feels like a faster way to get to financial independence by leveraging equity in a property but I haven't heard you talk about it. Would love to hear your thoughts. Keep up the good work, my man. Loving it. Cheers, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan, for your question. And yes, I have been getting a lot of uh, questions about debt recycling because I think I've been mentioning it here and there, bits and bobs, but I've never gone into it completely. Um, And I was just about to begin an article on it, but actually Dave at Strong Money wrote a really, really good piece. And I've linked it again in the article. Um, so if you want to know how debt recycling actually works practically, the the science, if you will, behind it, check out that article. It's really in depth and it's written written really well by Dave. So just go there. But if I can uh, explain a little bit about how I feel about it and like how I would use it in a certain situation, um, this is my take on it. So I'm a fan of debt recycling. And it's something that we will most likely use in the future when we eventually buy our primary place of residency. So really super quick overview of debt recycling. When you buy a house to live in, obviously the debt that comes attached to that house, if you've got a, you buy a house, you got $200,000 worth of debt, you can't claim any of that debt um, as tax deductible because it's it's a primary place of residency debt. It's not an investing debt. You're not using it to produce an income or anything like that, right? So what debt recycling does and the way that I would use it, so there's a, f- a few different ways to use it, but I think the safest and the way that just makes the most sense to me is if you had a primary place of residency debt and you had a lump sum like say you sold an investment property or you sold a bunch of shares or whatever, you inherited a bunch of money, whatever, you had a lump sum of cash and you were going to use that cash anyway to invest in shares, ETF, listed investment companies, it doesn't matter what it is, but you were going to use that anyway to invest and you weren't concerned about paying off the loan because the whole loan versus no loan debate, that's a whole nother topic. But what I'm talking about, lump lump sum of cash going to be invested anyway, regardless, not interested in paying off the loan in that situation. In my opinion, debt recycling actually turns into a tax minimization uh, strategy first and not so much a leveraging thing. Because I'm going to give you an example of how that would work and why it's a risk-free strategy that can lower the tax that you have to pay and why it's a tax uh, minimization strategy, I think. So let's imagine an investor. Uh, so the, the example I sort of gave before, let's say an investor has a 
$200,000 home loan that's not tax deductible. And they were given a lump sum. They sold an investment property somewhere and they've got $100,000 just sitting there. So debt recycling in this situation can be used to reduce tax with no extra risk. And the way it can be done is as follows. Investor A can use the $100,000 to pay part of the home loan off. So the home loan's $200,000. Use the $100,000 lump sum to pay off $100,000. So we're reducing the loan now to $100,000. The next day or straight away, however it works, you open up or the investor opens up a line of credit worth $100,000, uses the equity now that they've just paid off and they open up a line of credit of $100,000 and they use that line of credit to buy ETFs or listing investment companies or whatever. So the end result is always, uh, well, in this situation is the exact same. Investor A has the same amount of debt, $200,000 and still has $100,000 invested. But the difference being is the half the $200,000 is a line of credit that is now tax deductible because it's being used for investment purposes. And in the calculations that I did, assuming a 4% interest rate, the, the strategy of debt recycling in this situation would save the investor $1,480 in tax, assuming a 4% interest rate and them being in the 37% tax bracket. It works even better if you're in a higher bracket. If you're like a high roller and you're earning huge bucks, it works even better. Now, there's a whole raft of other issues and not issues, but things you have to consider before you go down this path, which is why you should read the article that, uh, that Dave wrote. But in that situation, um, and I'm assuming a few things here, but it, it is a risk-free because the other alternative without doing debt recycling in this situation would just be you you just get that $100,000 and you invest, right? So that's easy. You just get the lump sum of $100,000 $100, and you chuck it into ETFs or licks. But the issue with that is that you've still got a uh, home loan of $200,000 that is completely non-tax deductible at that stage. So why I don't like, I haven't seen a good reason in that situation why you wouldn't use debt recycling to lower your tax and uh, save yourself a bit on tax because you're going to end up with the same amount of debt. So it's not a debt issue. We're not arguing, you know, should you be in debt? Should you not be in debt? That's irrelevant in this situation. And you've invested the same amount of money anyway. Now, things I guess to to consider, and again, now I'm getting into the article, but you've got to make sure that the line of credit, the the interest rate um, is the at least, not the same, like try to get it the same as your home loan. You probably won't, but that it's not great enough that it offsets the savings that you made in the tax refund. So um, just be careful of that. But And there might be, just make sure that there's no loan splitting fees and you know all that good stuff. But if, it's, uh, if it is all good, then I don't see any reason not to do it. And that's something that I will probably be doing or we, we will probably be doing in the future, probably the next time we sell one of our investment properties and if we've got a home loan, I'll I'll be doing that exact strategy, dumping that into the loan, redrawing it out and using the money to dump into shares. So I hope that explained it. Make sure you read the article, explains a lot better there, but that's my reasoning and that's how we will most likely use it in the future. 
Hope that answers your question and we are done for another Friday. Enjoy your weekend, people, and I will see you next week. See you later.